Go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I'll give you a moment to turn there, and then we'll pray and get started. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, and we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through it. We pray that that's what you would do this morning as we dive into the book of Galatians. Pray that you would help us understand it so that we can live it out and walk with you better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been astonished? And by astonished, I don't just mean surprised. I know we've all been there. But what I want to know is, if you've ever been so caught off guard by something that another person has done or said, that you're left feeling a crushing weight of disbelief. Personally, I don't think I've ever experienced this feeling. But there's a story that comes to mind when I think of others who have. The story of Romeo and Juliet. Imagine that we're all familiar with the story. Romeo, the son of the Montagues. Juliet, the daughter of the Capulets. Meet and then fall in love. The story is full of intense family feuds and all sorts of betrayal. But the story meets its climax when Juliet devises a plan to leave her family and run away with her one true love, Romeo. She decides that she's going to take a potion that will make her seem dead. Now will convince her family, and then she'll be able to leave. But her plan only half works. She takes the potion, and her family thinks she's dead. But unfortunately, so does Romeo. Romeo finds her, and he's in disbelief. This is the woman that I love. This is the woman who loved me. He doesn't understand how she could have done this in any world. How could she have done this? Romeo is astonished. So astonished that he takes his own life. And when Juliet wakes up to find Romeo dead, she too is so astonished that she takes her own life. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul finds himself feeling the same sort of disbelief that Romeo and Juliet felt. The churches of Galatia are deserting the gospel, and Paul is astonished. So he writes them a letter. I've got two points for us this morning. The Galatians deserting the gospel, and false teachers distorting the gospel. So let's read the text, and then we'll dive into point one. Verses six and seven. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Point number one, the Galatians deserting the gospel. 
If you've ever read through the book of Galatians, or maybe even as you're looking at it right now, you may notice that something is missing. You see, there's typically a pattern to Paul's letters. He opens up with a greeting, spends some time giving thanks for whoever he's writing to, and then he dives into the issues. For example, in Ephesians, Paul greets the Ephesians and then starts his thanks, saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Corinthians, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. To the church at Rome, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He writes the same thing to the church at Colossae, to the Thessalonians, and to literally every other church, but not to the Galatians. No, in this letter, there's no section where Paul gives thanks for them. He writes to them and he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. I am astonished. It's clear that the tone of this letter is urgency. But why? Well, something that might help us understand why Paul is so perplexed by the Galatians is right here in the text. It's this word, quickly. Obviously, Paul has a relationship with the Galatians. That's why he's writing to them. But this relationship is one that began not too long ago. There's debate on when exactly Paul wrote this letter, but the majority of people believe that it was one to three years after his first trip to Galatia in Acts chapter 13. Now, you may be thinking, one to three years? That's not that quick. Should Paul really be surprised that the Galatians have changed since he last saw them? I get why you may think that. Time is funny. A year can feel long or short, depending on the situation we're in. For example, my daughter is almost two, and she's very different than she was a year ago. For her, a year has caused a lot of change. But think about a church. Think about this church. We left the Church of God denomination only two years ago. So imagine for a moment in a completely crazy scenario that all of the elders left this church for a couple years and then came back to find that we had joined the Church of God again. Don't you think that they would be surprised? Don't you think that they would describe that change as something that happened rather quickly? Of course they would. Which is why in verse 6, Paul describes the churches of Galatia in this way. When he gets an update on how the Galatians are doing, he might expect to hear that they have some problems. He's not stupid. He knows that no one is perfect. They're a young church. Their sanctification may have some bumps in the road. But Paul never expects to hear the report that they're deserting the gospel altogether. It just doesn't make sense. Paul just taught these people the true gospel, and he had a solid relationship with them. How do I know this? Well, because he describes his relationship later in the letter. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, he says, 
you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The Galatians loved Paul and they received him. Even though he was weak, even though he had been beaten and stoned for preaching the gospel, they still cared for him. In fact, they cared for him so much that in order to help Paul with some of his physical ailments, Paul believes that they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to him if they could have. The relationship between Paul and the Galatians wasn't messy when he left. They were on good terms. So what happened? Well, they found another gospel. Look at our text again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. People rarely run from something unless they have something to run towards, right? Think of climbing a ladder. When climbing a ladder, you don't let go of the rung you're on unless there's another rung to grab onto. And this is the case for the Galatians. They're letting go of the gospel they received from Christ in order to grab on to another gospel. But what was this different gospel that Paul's referring to? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't mince words about the so-called gospel that the Galatians are running towards for their salvation. He makes it clear to us that their new gospel is a gospel of faith plus works. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, I know that there's a lot there. But what Paul is saying here is that the Galatians started with faith in the true gospel. And now... They're adding in the law of Moses. They're deserting the gospel for this distorted gospel. Which brings us to point number two. False teachers distorting the gospel. In verse 7 of chapter 1, just after stating that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel, Paul wants to make himself 100% clear. 
So he clarifies what he means by a different gospel. He says, first, not that there is another one. So there's no other gospel except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that Paul's clarifying. The second thing Paul is clarifying about this other gospel is that it's not this entirely new idea. Look again at verse 7. He says, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This different gospel is the gospel of Christ distorted, which means it's not really the gospel of Christ at all. So now, hopefully, things are starting to make sense. How is it that the Galatians could so quickly turn to a different gospel? Well, because there were false teachers who had troubled them and were starting to distort the gospel that Paul had preached. There are three questions we have to ask ourselves about these false teachers, the ones who are troubling the Galatians. For you note-takers, these can be your sub-points under point number two. First question is, who are they? Second question is, how are they distorting the gospel? And the third question is, why are they distorting the gospel? So let's take those one by one. Who are they? These false teachers are called Judaizers. That word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Here, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter. Yes, you heard me right. Sometimes even the apostles had to correct each other. Actually happened a couple of times. But the reason why Paul confronts Peter this time is because Peter has a fear of man problem. You see, Peter had no issue associating with the Gentiles, those who were uncircumcised. He would sit down and he would eat with them. He would spend time with them until the circumcision party came around. These were the Judaizers. When they showed up, Peter would pull back from the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat with them anymore, and he didn't want to be associated with them at all. So when Paul sees Peter doing this, he says to him in verse 14, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And when he says that last line, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What he's literally saying is, how can you force the Gentiles to Judaize? I.e., live according to these Jewish customs. Peter's fear of the circumcision party is real. Okay? These people had the ability to ruin someone's life. And for Peter, even more so because he was a Jew. The Judaizers used fear of man to pull Peter in. And they did a similar thing with the Gentiles. Which brings us to our second question. How were they distorting the gospel? Distortion isn't all that complicated. Think about an electric guitar. The sound of an electric guitar is never replaced. It's only ever modified. 
When you hear distortion coming through speakers, it's because something has been added to the sound of the, of the guitar. That's what guitar pedals do. They take a clean signal from the guitar, they distort it, and then send it to the speakers. The Judaizers knew what they were doing. They didn't replace the gospel and try to sell it to the Galatians like, look, here's this new, shiny, fancy thing. No, what they did was take the true gospel, add their stuff to it, hold it up to the Galatians and say, look, if you squint just a little, doesn't it kind of look like Paul's gospel? If you tilt your head just a little, doesn't it look better? Don't you see? It's almost the same thing, really. But like I said earlier, the gospel of Christ distorted isn't the gospel of Christ at all. These Gentile Christians were told that they had to believe in Jesus, yes, but also you need to become Jewish. They had to take on the law. Do you remember what all that includes? You have to stay kosher or follow the dietary laws. You can't lift a finger on the Sabbath. You need to be circumcised and so much more. That's why Paul tells them later in his letter that this is not what the gospel of Christ says. This is not how grace works. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 2 through 6. Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I, I testify again to every man who, it's, who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In these verses, Paul is clear. If you understand circumcision to be a part of your salvation, you don't need Christ. Because this whole Christ plus works thing doesn't actually work. It wasn't going to work for the Galatians, and it will never work for us. We can't rely on any part of the law for our salvation because if we do, we're obligated to rely on all of the law. And what a sad path to salvation. Because we know that the law can only condemn us. It makes our sin clear to us, but it gives us no solution to our sin problem. The law offers us no way out. But thankfully, we have hope. We have hope 
through Jesus. Because he came, fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life that we couldn't, and offered us a way out. We were so far from him. We were his enemies. But he bore our punishment for sin on the cross. He died and rose again three days later. And all we have to do is repent. Turn away from our sins. Believe in him. And we will be saved. On the final day, no one will receive justification through the false gospel of the Judaizers or the prosperity teachers or any other false religion. No, the only way to be justified by God the Father is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 2, you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace. The Judaizers distorted the true gospel. I'm making one tweak here by adding some stuff there until it looked completely different, until it looked like the law. And then they sold it to the Gentiles. But why? Well, that's question number three. Why did the Judaizers distort the gospel? There is a stark contrast between the life of Paul and the Judaizers. Paul is someone who's constantly throwing all the attention away from himself and bringing all the attention to Christ. Paul wants there to be no confusion about his place in the story. He knows that he is just the messenger. The glory and the honor should be given to the one who wrote the message. That's why he's willing to be beaten, stoned, kicked out of cities, and put in prison. The last thing that Paul cares about is being glorified by man. In contrast with the false teachers who only care about being glorified by man. The Judaizers crave glory for themselves and they don't want any persecution or hardship to come their way. Where am I getting all this? Well, Paul says it. Later in the letter, Galatians 4.17, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Also, chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. The false teachers are preaching a false gospel because they want a kingdom of their own. They want a following. They want to boast in the fact that people listen to what they have to say. They want to be seen as the most righteous, the strongest, the smartest, and the most charismatic. They don't want to be weak like Paul. They don't want to have trouble speaking like Paul. They don't want to be persecuted like Paul. They don't want to preach the gospel of Christ because they don't want what the gospel of Christ 
has to offer for their earthly kingdom. That's why they're preaching a false gospel. And maybe you think that it's silly that anyone would listen to them. But really, it's not that far-fetched. I mean, think about it. Circumcision might not be the false gospel that we're tempted towards today. But it's not too far off. There are all kinds of different gospels in our world, and we have to be on guard against them. So I've got four application points for us. Application number one, beware of legalism. I start with this point because I think that out of every false gospel that the world has to offer, in this church, we're most likely to fall into the false gospel of legalism. Why? Well, because we're the church that cares about doctrine, theology, and obedience. We have a high view of God And we have a high view of his word, which, by the way, is a very good thing. It helps us to help each other follow God and his commandments as best as possible. As a church, I think we do this well, and I think we should keep doing it well. But in the back of our minds, we need to be aware that if we're not careful, we can start to rely on our obedience to get right with God we can start to credit our righteousness to our faith in Christ plus our good works. Everyone is in danger of doing this. No one is above it. I mean, if the Galatians, who were taught the gospel by the apostle Paul, if they can start to desert the gospel, I mean, certainly we can do the same thing. Think about your answers to these questions. When you read the Bible, do you do it because you desire to know God more? Or do you do it because you're supposed to and you need to check the Christian box? What about when you pray or volunteer for things at church? Do you do it out of love for God and for his people? Or do you sometimes do it because deep down you're trying to get on God's good side? You see, good works are somewhat tangible, and we like that, because we can look at them, we can count them, and we can compare them to our bad works. For example, I lied to my boss, but I prayed for three of my coworkers. I was impatient with my wife, but I read the Bible with our children, so really, it all evens out. It's tempting to use our good works as an eraser for every bad thing we've ever done, which is why we have to be careful. We can't place so much importance on doing good works that we forget why we do them in the first place or why we're even able to do them in the first place. Any good work that we ever do is not a credit to us. It's a sign of God's grace in our lives. Christ had to fulfill the law because we couldn't follow the law. So why would we run back to it? We need to be doing everything we can to turn from a workspace righteousness and towards the gospel of grace, which comes with another challenge. 
Because in an effort to avoid legalism, we can't overcorrect. We can't run to antinomianism, which is application point number two. Beware of antinomianism. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, God is first and foremost addressing a works-based righteousness, circumcision, and the law. But he also warns us by addressing antinomianism. And antinomianism is just a doctrine that argues against the Christian's need to obey the commandments of Christ. So why does Paul address this? Well, because while God is reminding us of our freedom in Christ, he also needs to remind us of how to use that freedom. Look at what Paul says later on in his letter in chapter 5, verse 13. Let's turn there. This 5.13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So God is making himself clear here. We can't use the freedom we've received through Christ to run back to the things that we were freed from. What are the things that we were freed from? Well, look later on in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So as Christians, we have to hold these two things in tension with one another. On the one hand, we've been freed from the law. Even though we're not perfect, even though we can never be perfect, God says, I have redeemed you by the blood of Christ, and you are no longer condemned. And then on the other hand, God says, if you use your freedom as an excuse to give in to your fleshly desires, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. How does this make sense? Well, it might not be as complicated as it may seem. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me and obey my commandments perfectly, then you will be saved. The Christian walk can be like the daily fluctuations of the stock market, right? It goes up, down, up, and down, but there's an upward trajectory. We will be battling the flesh until Christ comes, or until he calls us home. So are you in the battle? Or have you abused your freedom and decided that you don't need to fight sin at all? That's a cheap grace. Your attitude towards sin can't be, I'm going to go to heaven no matter what I do wrong. So what does it matter? 
That's not an option for us. God's word is clear. If you're a Christian, you battle the flesh. So we need to beware. Point number three, beware of false teachers. Today, there are false teachers who are just like the Judaizers. People who want to distort the gospel in order to build a platform in an earthly kingdom for themselves. And we need to beware of these people, these people who are teaching a false gospel, who are preaching a false gospel. And I know that it can be easy just to point out people who run the media circuit and are on social media with thousands of followers. People like Stephen Furtick, Todd White, Rob Bell, Joe Osteen, and Kenneth Copeland. We all know them. And while we might not need to be reminded that those people are out there, I think we do need to be reminded that there are people like them all over the place. People who aren't as famous, but maybe they want to be. People who don't have the platform, but maybe they're trying to build it. We need to beware of these other false teachers. And we need to start by recognizing that they're not just on TV and social media. There are people in this city that preach a prosperity gospel. There are people in this city that preach a works-based faith, or they preach a cheap grace. And they're looking for people like you and people like me to bring to their side. Again, we're not above it. It happened to the Galatians. It can happen to us. It can happen to our neighbors. It can happen to our family, to our friends, anybody who we love and care about. It can happen to any of us. I mean, listen, because of false teachers, the Roman Catholic Church has been preaching a distorted gospel for centuries. They've added works to faith and sold it to unsuspecting people for over 1,500 years. It can happen to any of us. So we need to be on guard. But ultimately, in order to run towards either of these false gospels or any other false gospel, antinomianism, legalism, prosperity gospel, we have to decide first to desert the true gospel for a distorted one, which is why we must rehearse the true gospel so that we may never forget it, which is point number four. Rehearse the gospel. It kind of blows my mind sometimes how easily we can forget things. Information flies into our brain, and then almost immediately, it flies back out. Kate and I used to see this play out in real time uh, when she would ask me to go to the grocery store. Uh, It used to be that Kate would send me out to grab like five things, but I would only ever come back with three of the things that I was supposed to bring home. And this happened, unfortunately, pretty much every time she sent me out. Uh, So I had to change some things. I had to start taking a list with me. And man, did it change the game. I have never gone to the grocery store with a list and forgotten an item that I was supposed to bring home. It's never happened. The list is my reminder, and it keeps me on the right path. And in our Christian walk, 
the local church is our reminder that keeps us on the right path. There's no better way to hold fast to the faith than by rehearsing the gospel together every Sunday. You've probably heard us say it many times, we're a word-centered church, which means that we sing the word, we pray the word, read the word, preach the word, and see the word through the ordinances. And we do that so we can constantly meditate on the good news of Christ. It's so hard to forget the gospel if you hear it and you're surrounded by it every single week. Think of some of the lyrics that we've sung this morning. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All to him I owe. Not my ability to keep the law, but his. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When you sing these lyrics and lyrics like them to the rest of the church, you're admonishing them and you're encouraging them and you're pointing them back to Christ. When we pray a prayer of confession like we prayed this morning, we are, as one body, acknowledging that we're totally dependent on God for the forgiveness of our sins. We're reminded that our life can't be lived with a cheap grace, but that we've been saved in order that we might live holy lives. Look at the scriptures our sister Susan read for us this morning. All of them proclaim the gospel, and they contradict any false teachers who may try to distort the gospel with their own thoughts and ideas. And when you sit under word-centered preaching, the word of God will pour over you, and you will hear its main message. You will hear the story of Christ. And it will be that much harder to forget the truth that set you free from the foolish, false gospels of this world. So now, let's pray. And then we'll finish rehearsing the gospel by singing, In Christ Alone. God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you that despite our sin, despite the fact that we were enemies of you, that you still loved us and you came down. You came down to us in order that we might repent, believe in you, and live with you forever. So as we sing this next song, we pray that we would never forget that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.